0: You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me fix What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make it an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train. I don't know who you are. Why oh, so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, yes. I'm better. He's lion! Snap out of it! If they call me Mr. Boy's best friend, You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. No. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I'm currently recording this from my new bedroom and my parents' new place in Washington, as I will be doing for the next two weeks, so hopefully it doesn't sound too crazy different. If it does, that's why. You might also hear the little whines of a year-old Lab in the background, because she's currently pawing at the door for me to let her in, but that is not going to happen, because she is very loud. Anyway, this week, we cover the Hollywood Ten, members of an original group of 19 that refused to cooperate when HUAC interrogated Hollywood. We'll also cover some stories of other blacklisters that followed in the ensuing years whose lives the blacklist also destroyed in its wake. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime.
0: The meeting will come to order. This committee, under its mandate from the House of Representatives has the responsibility of exposing and spotlighting subversive elements wherever they may exist. It is only to be expected that such elements would strive desperately to gain entry to the motion picture industry, simply because the industry offers such a tremendous weapon for education and propaganda.
1: To this day, it is not fully understood how or why the majority of the subpoenaed unfriendlies were chosen and why others were not. It could have been as random as pulling names out of a hat, or whoever was accused the most times during the summer of 1947, or maybe, hey, PewAC chucked darts at a board that had everybody's name on it, and the ones the darts hit, guess what, you gotta go to Washington. Whatever the thought process was, the eventual Hollywood 10 that faced the full wrath of the justice system would have their fates irrevocably altered forever. The weekend between the unfriendlies and friendlies testimonies, some of those unfriendlies and their supporters rallied in an attempt to regain the narrative that had drastically spun out of control during that first week. One such meeting took place at lyricist Ira Gershwin's house, which was monitored by Warner Brothers, whom had men out front of the house, and when they saw somebody arrive and go into the house, they took down the license plates of those whom went into the house, and those plate numbers were sent to the FBI, whom of course had the resources to figure out who the owners were, and then they eventually got subpoenaed and the like. This particular meeting had been called by members of the Committee for the First Amendment, a group of liberal-leading individuals whom rallied together to support the 19 and anybody else's rights to exercise their First Amendment, a.k.a. believing or following whatever they like. That's supposed to be the rule. Members of this committee included Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, and Lucille Ball. The Committee for the First Amendment, in addition to attending the second week of HUAC testimonies, attempted to defend their colleagues via two specials that aired on ABC Radio on October 27th and November 2nd, 1947, during which committee members voiced their opposition to the HUAC hearings. The group, which was generally composed of non-communist liberal Democrats, was eventually hurt and then destroyed when it was subsequently revealed that Sterling Hayden, one of the group's members, had been a Communist Party member all briefly. Humphrey Bogart, who was easily the most famous of anybody in that committee at the time, had been assured that the committee had no communists in it, so naturally when he found out that there was at least one, he was super mad. Turned out, also, most of those in the group didn't know that at least half of the 19 unfriendlies that were subpoenaed had also been communists at some point, which meant that members of the Committee for the First Amendment, by extension, were communist sympathizers, the second worst thing you could be at this particular time in history. The California State Legislature, which had its own Un-American Activities Committee, soon branded the committee for the First Amendment as a communist front. SAG President Ronald Reagan claimed that his fellow liberals, remember he was still liberal at this time, had been the victims of, quote, one of the most successful operations in the communists' domestic history, terming the First Amendment members as, quote-unquote, suckers. Ira Gershwin would later testify before the California State Senate's Un-American Activity Subcommittee that he was appalled to have been involved in the group in the first place. By the time the 10 would go to trial, the committee for the First Amendment was a distant memory, as was any open support for any of the Hollywood 10. Just because the group was disbanded, though, doesn't mean that some of them wouldn't be called during the second wave of HUAC hearings and eventually find themselves blacklisted but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Back to October, 1947. The legal strategy that 18 of the 19 men and their lawyers prepared had been done as a united front at the Shoreham Hotel in DC. Together, they figured out talking points, planned protests, did mock interviews, and planned their official statements to be read out in front of HUAC. Some of them didn't even like each other, but were forced to get along because of their common belief systems that had called them to these hearings in the first place. Their strategy? It was a simple one. They would argue that HUAC as an entity had absolutely no constitutional right to look into the political beliefs of any American, communist or no. They also set up to argue when they ultimately didn't answer the HUAC's questions satisfactorily that the group was merely answering in their own way. They opted not to prepare to use the right to plead the fifth, which prevents one from self-incrimination, believing that the first, freedom of speech, meaning you can't be prosecuted for your beliefs in the United States, would suffice, and that pleading the fifth would insinuate guilt, of which they technically did not have, because being a communist wasn't illegal. Dalton Trumbo would reflect on this decision later on, saying, quote, We thought we'd win. Before the first unfriendly took to the stand before HUAC, two of the group's lawyers attempted to stop HUAC in its tracks on the ground that it was, quote, illegal both in its powers and its use of those powers. And that by trying to tell Hollywood what films they were and were not allowed to make, and further by trying to pressure Hollywood into trying to create a blacklist, was against the First Amendment. It was, but you know, mm. You're not going to believe this, but after a HUAC subcommittee withdrew into an executive session for 15 minutes to mull all of this over, they decided that, quote, No committee of Congress has the right to establish its own legality of constitutionality. A committee of Congress cannot disqualify itself from the provisions of the law. Then the lawyers for the unfriendlies tried to call for cross-examination of the previous week's witnesses to, quote, show that these witnesses lied. That, of course, was also turned down. So the unfriendlies began taking to the stand. First was John Howard Lawson, a Jewish college-educated screenwriter. Lawson had served in World War I as an ambulance driver, during which time he was introduced to communism and eventually became a member. Lawson would, by the late 1930s, have become a major Hollywood screenwriter, a founder of their guild, SWG, and was a major mouthpiece during the writer's strikes in Hollywood during the 1930s. Lawson began his HUAC testimony by attempting to read his prepared statement. But J.B. Thomas, the ringleader of this shit show, if you've forgotten, took the statement from Lawson, looked it over, and told him that it could not be read in the hearing. Lawson began shouting at Thomas, who shouted right back, and Lawson stated that he'd been vilified for a week and that quote, "You refuse to let me to make a statement on my rights as an American citizen." Thomas still refused to let Lawson read his statement. Lawson was then questioned on his membership in his guild, to which he replied, quote, it is a matter of public record. Lawson further commented on how last week the witnesses were able to hypothesize wildly with long-winded responses to the questions HUAC gave them, but Lawson was being limited to a sentence or less in most cases. Thomas banged his gavel any time Lawson rebuffed him. Then, of course, came the soon to be infamous quote, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party question. Lawson responded, quote, the question of communism is in no way related to this inquiry, which is an attempt to get control of the screen and to invade the basic rights of American citizens in all fields. After a little more back and forth, Thomas ordered Lawson away from the stand, but Lawson refused, stating, quote, I have written Americanism for many years, and I shall continue to fight for the Bill of Rights, which you are trying to destroy. Six members of Capitol Police returned him to a seat in the first row of the gallery. Shortly after, Lawson was found in contempt of Congress, a fate that would befall the nine unfriendlies that followed. The only other person who would appear before HUAC that first day would be Eric Johnston, the head of the MPAA, whom we discussed last week. Day two began with Dalton Trumbo, probably the most well-known of the eventual ten. There's a movie about Trumbo that Brian Cranston starred in, which if you haven't seen, highly recommend. Dramatizes all of this and gives you a really good idea. If I haven't, well, I mean, I've been doing fine. <laughs> Trumbo was a longtime communist, not unlike Lawson, and after years of novels and short stories being rejected as Trumbo worked as a baker, at the dawn of World War II, Trumbo's career took off thanks to the publishing of his anti-war novel, Johnny Got His Gun. When the U.S. entered World War II, he wrote some of those movies during that time that were now being fingered as being communistic and would continue to be for the rest of this week. All in all, Trumbo had done quite well for himself in the capitalistic Tinseltown. When Trumbo took the stand in the HUAC chambers, he tried to read an opening statement and was also turned down by Thomas. As you may remember, several of the friendlies had also prepared opening statements and all of them had been allowed. Trumbo coolly reminded them that even a Nazi-sympathizing, anti-Semitic American preacher had been allowed to read a statement when he had appeared before HUAC two years prior. Thomas, in between frantic gavel bangs and shouting, you'll notice he bangs the gavel anytime anybody makes a decent point, Thomas threatened Trumbo with the same fate as Lawson, being charged with contempt of Congress if he kept it up. Also like Lawson, HUAC suggested Trumbo only answer with yes or no. Trumbo responded that the only people who answer most questions with yes or no are either, quote, a moron or a slave. Trumbo also tried to submit his scripts to the record to prove that there was a lack of communistic influence, and he was pretty much told no because that was too much for anybody to read. When asked if he was in the Screenwriters Guild, Trumbo told him that he didn't have to tell them as secret membership rosters were the right of Americans. After a series of back and forth, a member of HUAC asked the have you now question and Trumbo asked to see the apparent membership card they had for him proving he was a communist, which had led to him being called before Congress in the first place. He was denied this right and said that he'd see soon enough. Trumbo was excused soon after by being called impossible, but not before Trumbo got off, quote, this is the beginning of an American concentration camp. After Trumbo came Roy M. Brewer, a friendly whom was a member of IOTC. He named a series of potential communists that were in the warring faction of craftsmen CSU and accused communists of taking over the labor unions again, no proof and also never a thing When Herbert Sorrell, a prolific Union man whom Walt Disney had named the week prior in his testimony heard of Brewer's accusations, he demanded to be called to testify as everything Brewer and Disney had said were lies. Unsurprisingly, Brewer was never subpoenaed. The next person that was called was MPAA lawyer Paul V. McNutt, who in a Hail Mary attempt demanded HUAC to release all this proof the committee claimed to have against Hollywood. He said, quote, insinuation and innuendo are never fair and not facts, end quote, and that if facts and evidence would not be made public, then these hearings should not be happening. They should be closed door hearings as the ones had been back in the spring. Of course, this was ignored. Screenwriter Albert Maltz followed McNutt and was even less cooperative than the unfriendlies that had preceded him. Like Lawson, Maltz was highly educated and had cut his teeth as a writer in New York before coming to Hollywood. Like Trumbo and the rest of the Ten, Maltz had benefited during World War II, writing films that supported the war effort, and had two Oscars to show for that work. Despite denying Lawson and Trumbo the right to read opening statements, Maltz was allowed. If Thomas could read it first, of course. Maltz fought back and sped red through it when Thomas tentatively agreed. In it, Maltz declared his American patriotism and his credits that backed up this claim and further testified that he would, quote, rather die than be a shabby American. Then follow that up with, quote, the American people are going to have to choose between the Bill of Rights and the Thomas Committee. They can't have both. And that went down in the room about as well as you'd think. Those SWG and communist questions followed, and Maltz asked if the next step was going to be persecution based on their religious beliefs. Quote, Next, you are going to insist before various members of the industry that since you don't like what my religious beliefs are, and you are going to insist before various members of the industry that since you don't like my religious beliefs, I should not work in the industry. When asked the communist question again, Maltz stated that he answered the question. He too was excused. Maltz's lawyer, and one of the lawyers for the unfriendlies, Robert W. Kennedy, was then sworn in and asked if he had told Maltz not to answer the committee's questions. Kennedy reminded the committee, of course, of lawyer-client confidentiality. The next screenwriter called was Alva Bessie, another highly educated wordsmith whom had served in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, which was, if you remember, a group of Americans fighting in the Spanish Civil War. Bessie was a very active member of the Communist Party and was employed with Warner Brothers throughout the war, again, writing the screenplays that Hollywood was now in trouble for, that they had in part made at the behest of the government. Bessie was allowed to read his opening statement too, during which he stated that he would quote, never aid or abet such a committee and its patent attempt to foster any sort of intimidation and terror that is the inevitable precursor of the fascist regime. He, of course, was referring to HUAC when he made that statement. The now textbook series of events followed, culminating in Bessie being escorted off the stand. After that, someone in the gallery was heard muttering what everybody else was likely thinking, quote, four down, 15 to go. After watching the full tilt circus, the committee for the First Amendment opted to stay in town to ensure it didn't look like they had ducked and ran. While it wasn't known at the time, the third day was the second to last. Before they started, though, Thomas doubled down on their chaos, declaring that day that HUAC, quote, have not, and we are not, violating the rights of any American citizen, not even the rights of the communists whose first allegiance is to a foreign government, which is not true. They also stated that the committee would not be intimidated by, quote, any Hollywood glamour. He then stated that the four that had already testified were clearly commie lovers and would care more about Russia than America, which, of course, again, was not the case. But HUAC was far down the rabbit hole by this point, just chugging that Kool-Aid. The first up to testify on day three was Samuel Ornitz, the least well-off of any of the unfriendlies. Ornitz's career had already stalled as he'd been called out for being a communist back in 1940, so all of this just had to feel like salt in an open wound. Ornitz's angle when he took to the stand was to question the motives of HUAC from a religious hypothetical. Ornitz, like many of the 19, was Jewish and noted that the majority of those unfriendlies called were those who had been the loudest voice when it came to being critical of anti-Semitism and or treat African-Americans as individuals with depth greater than maid or slave. Ornitz ended this statement loudly declaring, quote, I accuse, to emphasize his point. Thomas countered with, quote, you will not accuse anybody. Then came, you guessed it by now, the SWG and communist questions. Ornes responded that his political, not unlike his religious beliefs, were defended in the U.S. Constitution. He was dismissed shortly thereafter. Another well-educated screenwriter took the stand in Herbert Bieberman. Once again, Thomas changed his mind, and the opening statements were denied, because yesterday's had just caused utter chaos. When he was denied, Bieberman called them, quote, shameful and cowardly. Then Thomas and Bieberman yelled at each other for a few minutes. When order, if you can call it that, was regained, the SWG slash commie one-two punch was asked. Bieberman refused a straight answer, telling HUAC instead that they just wanted to cause chaos in Hollywood. He was escorted off the stand in response. Emmett Lavery, the current head of the SWG and a Democrat, provided an intermission from madness. When he got asked the communist question himself, Lavery, a former lawyer turned screenwriter, responded with, quote, as a student of constitutional law, I am not sure the committee has the right to ask this question. But let me break your suspense at once. I am not a communist. I am a Democrat who in my youth was a Republican. Now, if the committee would like to know why I became a Democrat, they did not. Lavery informed the committee that the SWG had an open admissions policy and that the Guild was not in the habit of banishing people from it. That wasn't their job. In 1952, however, SWG would ultimately cave to the will of HUAC and begin allowing the omission of the names of any blacklisted screenwriter from motion pictures. After Lavery came the next ten, and the only one who was not in the Screenwriters Guild, Edward Dimitrik. Dimitrik was Canadian by birth, but had become a go-to director for that pesky wartime cinema. Dimitrik had the shortest time as a communist, joining in 1944 and leaving shortly thereafter the following year, but that didn't keep him from getting called to the HUAC stand. Again, Dmitryk was denied to read his opening statement. He refused all questions asked of him in a much calmer fashion than those that had preceded him, but he also didn't directly answer the questions asked of him, stating he answered them in his own way, then he was dismissed. A series of RKO representatives came next to defend the film Crossfire from 1947, a film that dealt with anti-Semitism, which had been directed by Dmitryk. Also, about whether or not the studio would hire communists. Head of production at that time, Dor Sherry, said that he let their track records speak, not their political affiliations. Dimitrix Crossfire collaborator, Adrian Scott, would also find himself on the blacklist after testifying defending their film. When asked about his guild affiliations, Scott replied that the question, quote, invades my rights as a citizen. I do not believe it is proper for the committee to inquire my personal relationships, my private relationships, my public relationships. When asked if he was a communist, he answered more or less the same way. The final day of the HUAC hearings began with Ring Lardner Jr., yet another highly educated individual that became a popular screenwriter during World War II. Thomas switched up his methods this time and told Lardner that he could read his statement if he testified first. This was a thinly veiled attempt to get Lardner to potentially cooperate in the hopes of getting his two cents in at the end, which is super messed up in its own way, but here we are. And then eventually when he was asked if he was a communist, Lardner responded, it depends on the circumstances. Lardner was demanded to step down shortly after. Lester Cole, the 10th followed Lardner, and he had been responsible for writing films that dealt with social issues. Cole was denied his statement and had a brief, loud argument with Thomas before being dismissed. told Brecht, whom would have become one of 11 if he had given Hueck the chance, entered the chamber for his testimony, denied being a communist, answered a few questions, and left the chamber. He then left the country altogether. After all of that, HUAC's chief investigator took the stand and gave a long-winded testimony about how communists had definitely infiltrated Hollywood. When he finally finished his seemingly endless droning, J.P. Thomas announced that the hearings were finished, for now. In the meantime, quote, the industry should set about immediately to clean its own house and not wait for public opinion to force it to do so. Like I mentioned last week, for about a month, it looked like nothing was going to become of the Hollywood 10 and their explosive time in Washington. That, of course, changed on November 25, 1947, when all 10 were charged with contempt of Congress during a special session. After a handful of House members spoke against them, the charges were passed 346 to 17 The next day, it was announced via the Waldorf Statement that the major studios would bar the 10 from working until they would renounce communism. Nearly five months later, on April 12, 1948, John Howard Lawson was brought to trial, followed three weeks later, by Dalton Trumbo in a U.S. District Court in Washington. In each of these incredibly short trials, the jury found the defendants guilty of contempt of Congress. Judges Edward M. Curran and David A. Pine suspended their sentences, which was one year in jail and a $1,000 fine pending appeals. The other eight reached settlements based on the verdicts of the first two to spare them from financial burden or the time of a trial after it became clear this was a losing battle. Also, the ten kept faith in a higher power, though not one you think. All of the ten were more or less certain that the Supreme Court would overturn the rulings. But in a sick twist of Murphy's Law, in the summer of 1949, two of the liberal justices died. Their successors were conservative and therefore shifted the court majority to that side, and that new majority refused to review the Lawson and Trumbo cases, and that was all she wrote. On June 9th, 1950, Lawson and Trumbull began their prison sentences. The trials of the remaining eight opened on June 22nd, which was just the sentencing. Within a week, they were all found guilty. Six received one year sentences and $1,000 fines. And Demetrik and Bieberman, for whatever reason, were only fined 500 and jailed for only six months. Their defense lawyers, Robert W. Kenny and Martin W. Popper, introduced motions for acquittal, suspension of sentence, and release on bail pending appeal the judges denied them all. Since the eight had agreed to stand on the records of the jury trials of the first two, and the Supreme Court had denied any review, they were sentenced and jailed immediately. From their prison cells, all ten men sued their employers for breach of contract. The studios eventually settled out of court for a total of $259,000, which was to be shared by the ten, though not equally. During an attempt to fundraise for their legal defense in 1951, several of the Hollywood 10 made a special trying to appeal to the American people about their circumstances. What would happen if UAC came knocking on their door? How would they respond to the questions coming from the HUAC pulpit? The group also bashed President Truman's April twenty fourth, 1950 statement, in which he took credit for convicting the Hollywood Ten of contempt of Congress. They called it government by stool pigeon. All American citizens just ratting each other out and calling it justice. When HUAC was taken over by mostly Democratic control by the time HUAC returned to Hollywood in 1951, the hearings were far more civil than they'd been four years prior. They also moved them from Washington to Hollywood. The lack of chaos didn't mean the consequences of not quote-unquote cooperating were less devastating, though. Just sand some time in the clink. This time, both alleged communists and anyone who supported them were in the crosshairs. This began the rapid expansion of the blacklist. In the early 1950s, for example, the publication Red Channels was published, naming 151 accused communists and communist sympathizers, including a 19-year-old Lee Grant, whom had spoken at an already blacklisted friend's funeral. When she accused the stress of HUAC as the reason for his fatal heart attack at the funeral, her name was published in this document. She was blacklisted overnight, and while she would work again, it was nowhere near at the level she had been at before her blacklisting. People ended up on the black or gray list for a variety of reasons. Some of the crazier ones I read for people ending up this way was, for example, for briefly dating someone who was rumored to be a communist, despite the man being conservative himself. One actor was blacklisted because he had a similar name to a clother that had been blacklisted in his own industry, for refusing to cooperate with Congress. It wasn't even his dude. As you can see, they're playing it real fast and loose with facts and critical thinking. But the one difference between the second hearing and the first, because everybody had learned from the first shit show, that the second wave kept out of prison by claiming their Fifth Amendment right to stay out of prison. By doing so, though, it yielded a guaranteed spot on the blacklist. After the second wave of hearings, lines were drawn. Friendships and marriages had been destroyed careers were snuffed out in an instant in the case of screenwriter richard collins after a brief time on the blacklist he became a friendly and divorced his wife actress dorothy common gore whom famously played susan kane in the film citizen kane as she had refused to name names when the divorce occurred collins took the couple's son with him common gore became an alcoholic and died of pulmonary disease at the age of 58 in 1971 having never worked in hollywood again In the case of Paul Jericho, a screenwriter for RKO, he was subpoenaed in front of press whom had been called by HUAC to witness the event. When asked in testimony if he would rather name names or potentially go to prison, he chose the latter and pled the fifth. The very next day, when attempting to enter the lot at RKO, he was told that he had been fired and would not be permitted to even go in to collect his things. By this time, RKO was owned by Howard Hughes, whom was maniacally anti-communist. There are hundreds of stories just like these of people whom had their careers snatched away both in and out of Hollywood due to the unconstitutional overreach of UAC. In Hollywood, this included writer Lillian Hellman and playwright Arthur Miller and hundreds of others. Time would weaken the blacklist, but only about 10% of those who ever found their name in the Devil's Book ever worked in Hollywood again. Of the Hollywood Ten, eight would eventually make their way back into entertainment in one form or another. But it would take years of struggle to do so.
0: Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? The question of communism is in no way related to this inquiry, which is an attempt to get control of the screen and to invade the basic rights of Americans in all fields. The question here relates not only to the question of my membership in any political organization, but this committee is attempting to establish the right, which is historically denied to any committee of this sort. We're going to get the answer to that question if we have to stay here for a week. Are you a member of the Communist Party, or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? It's unfortunate and tragic that I have to teach this committee the that's basic principles of Americanism. Question, that's not the question. The question is, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I'm framing my answer in the only way in which any American citizen can frame his then answer you denied, to a question which you, invades his. Absolutely invades. Then you deny, to you, you refuse to answer that question. Is that correct? I have told you that I will right. offer my beliefs, my affiliations and Here's everything the else the to the American stand. public and they will know where I stand as they do from what I have written. Stand away I have from have written the stand. From, for Americanism for many years and I... Stand from... away from the stand.
1: And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got Buy Me a Coffee, where you can buy me a coffee. I'm very close to Seattle, and I would like to get some fancy coffee while I maniacally write this last episode. So any help would be great. I've also got merch. Check it out in the link in the show notes. Next week, we cover the aftermath of HUAC, how some broke through the blacklist, and how an enduring piece of American literature that I'm sure most of you Americans have read in high school, but probably didn't know, it was actually about HUAC in Hollywood. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.
0: folks haven't got a chance unless we organize. Which side are you on? Which side are you on?